carry around the expectation that the preacher would bring a momentous sermon under the steam of no previous momentum heading into it through the service. And I got to tell you, it feels really unfair to me always to have to come up here and preach after them. However, <clears throat> it does feel like momentum. It feels like the Spirit of God moving among us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson, which actually begins on the first verse of chapter 4. The Gospel according to St. Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, and by the every, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, God will command God's angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only God. And then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In 1974, philosopher Richard Nozick proposed a famous thought experiment. He called it the EMTE, the Experience Machine Thought Experiment. Now, after its subsequent revision in 1989, here's how the experiment goes. Imagine a machine that could give you any experience or sequence of experiences that you might desire. When connected to this experience machine, you can have the experience of writing a great poem or bringing about world peace or 
loving someone and being loved in return. You can experience the felt pleasures of these things, how they feel from the inside. You can program your experiences for tomorrow or this week or this year or even for the rest of your life. And upon entering, you will not remember having done this, so no pleasure will get ruined by realizing that the pleasures are machine-produced. You can live your fondest dreams from the inside. Would you choose to do this for the rest of your life? If not, why not? Now, if you're having a little difficulty wrapping your head around this, consider it sort of the, the forerunner of the matrix. In other words, would you rather live in a perfect simulation of real life, one where there's no pain, no war, no disease, no poverty, no racism or sexism, no xenophobia or homophobia or transphobia, no disability, no disappointments, no awkward teenage years, no ravages of aging, no career disappointments, no zits, no taxes, or would you rather have a real, authentic life where your experiences come not from inside your imagination, but from the cold, hard reality of everyday life? If you had the choice, would you choose the blue pill that promises a pain-free existence, or would you choose the red pill that promises no extra pleasure or an absence of pain, but only the mundane reality of life, filled with all the suffering and disappointment that human beings and, uh, experience. That's, kind of, that's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, we like the heroic idea of trusting the real and committing ourselves to authentic lives of truth instead of, sort of simulated lives of distraction, don't we? I mean, that feels right somehow. But I'm not sure if our ideals always match our sense of ourselves as the heroes of our own stories, as the, the, the fearless uh, pursuers of truth over distraction. One could argue, of course, that, that our addiction to our smartphones and the internet deliver, uh, the, the internet that they deliver, that somehow demonstrates that we've already taken the first steps of plugging into the machine. In Fyodor Dostoevsky's epic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, one of the brothers, Ivan, the middle brother, introduces a, a similar thought experiment. But instead of projecting our lives into the future, his thought experiment looks back to the dark days of the Spanish Inquisition in Spain. As Ivan lays out his story for his younger brother who's in the process of becoming a, a monk, he sets the stage in 1500s Seville, Spain, at the height of the Inquisition, when, quote, for the glory, greater glory of God, stakes were flaming all over the country, close quote. In the middle of all that, Jesus returns. Except he doesn't return with the trumpet sounding in the skies being torn open. Instead, Jesus mysteriously shows up in the Spanish countryside in the same form as in his first appearance, appearance on earth, 
is sort of quietly healing everyone who touches the hem of his garment. Now, in Ivan's tale, even though Jesus says only two words, the whole world immediately recognizes him for who he is. And, of course, people flock to him because of the love that radiates from him, the love that touches almost everyone. Now, in the middle of all this furor over Jesus' return, a procession emerges from the cathedral of this town, bearing the tiny white coffin of a seven-year-old girl. The dead child's mother pleads with Jesus, if it really is you, bring my child back to life. Jesus raises the coffin's lid to see the little girl surrounded by flowers holding a bouquet of white roses. And then in the only two words Jesus speaks in this whole 10,000-word parable, he recalls the gospel stories and he says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, get up. And just as in the gospel story, the little girl sits up. Now, Ivan says that this miracle completely blows the crowd away. They were violently excited, Dostoevsky says. But unfortunately, witnessing all of this is the cardinal, who, as fate would have it, is also uh, the head of the, Inquisi uh, the Inquisitionary Gestapo, the Grand Inquisitor immediately orders the guard to arrest Jesus, throw him in prison. Now the crowd, which has all grown to fear and cower before the power of the Inquisition, once again sort of lose their enthusiasm and shrink, shrinks back in, in, in fear. And the rest of the story is set in Jesus' prison cell where the Grand Inquisitor shows up to have it out. Of course, the setup to Ivan's story strikes most people who read it as improbable, right? I mean, after all, if Jesus came back to us, we like to think that, you know, we'd welcome him. So why throw Jesus in jail for being Jesus? <laughs> I mean, what's the problem? Well, the Grand Inquisitor explains his displeasure. At bottom, the Grand Inquisitor makes an argument that God had it right when humans lived in the Garden of Eden. Not for the reasons necessarily that we always think of, but it's because they didn't have to worry about anything since all their needs were taken care of. But the sin of Adam and Eve, that is, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, reveals to them the possibility that they have freedom, that they can make choices. And now having freedom will ultimately make Adam and Eve dissatisfied with the perfection of the garden. So God kicks them out, allowing them to embrace this newfound freedom. But according to the Grand Inquisitor, the descendants of Adam and Eve are cattle who soon realize that freedom doesn't come with a guaranteed meal plan. 
working by the sweat of their brow, even though they do so freely, soon pales in compare, uh, compared to living all the, with all the goodies that the garden had to offer. And so, according to the Grand Inquisitor, humanity's yearning to return to the Garden of Eden is merely humanity once again longing to put away freedom in favor of a, a reliable and ouchless existence where every physical need is provided for. People don't have to think for themselves, worrying about how they'll put that freedom to work. Instead, they can just plug back in to the matrix, let their eyes glaze over, and live like the cattle that they are. Well, the Grand Inquisitor returns to this disagreement with Jesus by saying that Jesus almost messed everything up for humanity. Because in the temptations in the wilderness, Satan offered Jesus the keys to returning humanity to its place in the garden, or at least the Grand Inquisitor's conception of the garden. To take away their freedom and give humans the reliable and ouchless existence that God created them for. And so he says to Jesus, meantime, every chance of success was offered to you there are three powers, three unique forces upon earth capable of conquering forever by charming the conscience of these weak rebels, humans, for their own good. And these forces are miracle, mystery, and authority. Now, essentially, the Grand Inquisitor says, look, you had a chance. I mean, you could have helped humanity by turning those stones into bread, restoring its easy life in Eden, you could have taken away doubt and overwhelmed humanity by doing something so outrageous, like, you know, jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, that humans would have no choice but to sacrifice their freedom to blindly follow you by plugging back into the experience machine. Satan offered you Caesar's sword and unquestioned obedience that comes with it to take humanity's cursed freedom away from them. You could, you could have done all of that. But instead, you chose to allow humanity the unwanted freedom to make their own way in this world, deciding for themselves whom they should trust. But you done messed up, Jesus. But luckily for humanity, we were there to save the day for you. For 1,500 years, the church has had to clean up your messes. Humans are now happy because we've given them easy food in exchange for their freedom. And we've eliminated the need to waste any time imagining that they'd be better off chasing their own way forward. Instead, we've forced them to give up their freedom. And in the bargain, they get predictable lives. And we, of course, we bear the thankless task of being in power. Now, you could argue that we've taken something central to what it means to be human, that is, freedom, and replaced it with a predictable existence without all of that troublesome liberation. And we, don't, we, we, we won't let you mess that up by coming back here and trying to free people up all over again. You are no longer needed here. We've got it under control for you. Thank you very much. Now, with this short parable of the Grand Inquisitor, Dostoevsky cleverly parodies 
the church as an institution whose primary tools have often been domination and coercion. He makes the argument that Christianity always gets it wrong when it believes that nothing is so messed up with humanity that the application of power can't somehow solve it. Indeed, there are plenty of religious leaders around today who seem to believe that their greatest job is to control everybody else's lives, usually focused on the time-tested bugbears of sexuality and reproduction and reminding the powerless that all the problems they experience in life could be fixed if they'd only, you know, try harder and, 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 and pray and, and, and trust God more. Of course, if you happen to be one of those who don't enjoy the privileges of straight, middle-class, white men, like me, this often sounds to you like, look, if you don't like the life you have, well, you know, you should have thought of that and been born into better situations like us. Or you could win the lottery. That'd change things up for you. I mean, otherwise, we don't know what to tell you. Our job is to make you look, talk, and think as much like us as possible. It's what God wants. But perhaps the most common way this story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness has been used is as a model to show us how to withstand our own personal temptations. Jesus enters the wilderness, faces down the devil, quoting scripture and exercising a little willpower, kind of like a case study from your spiritual life coach, right? Show you how you can stick to your diet or you know, stop cheating at fantasy football or whatever. Do this and you too can conquer your demons. But I'd like to suggest that this story, like, like, like so many others in the gospel, isn't written primarily to individuals to help them be spiritual superheroes. Instead, the Gospels are written to specific communities of faith to give them a handle on how to navigate the tough religious, social, economic, and political waters of a hostile Roman Empire. What do I mean? Well, the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, was most likely written to a church of Jewish Christians in the Syrian capital of Antioch, sometime after A.D. C.E., which is to say, after Rome destroyed Jerusalem and demolished the temple in 70 C.E., which is to say, about 40, 50 years after the death of Jesus. Now, for a group of Jewish Christians, the aftermath of that destruction, where the temple is torn down and Jerusalem is just absolutely demolished, That all lingered in their minds for years. I mean, it would have been as if Matthew was writing to a church of former New Yorkers in the aftermath of 9-11. Except in Matthew's case, the terrorists weren't a ragtag group of foreign nationals. It was the government that had committed itself to destroying people's lives. When Matthew wrote this gospel, the church he addressed was still in shock, terrified of what might become of them because of the empire that ruled them. Now, the humiliating signs of Roman control over their lives 
I mean, they were everywhere. They couldn't get away from it. Not only did they have that in their recent history to think about, Rome had even minted new coins to commend this humiliation, this Jewish disgrace. These new coins were called Judea Capta coins, or Judea the captive, captured. And they were first issued by Vespasian and then his son Titus, who were both responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. And these coins depicted various figures, especially a bound female who personified in the Roman mind the Jewish state. They celebrated the defeat of the Jews by making them use currency that was a constant reminder of their own powerlessness. Now, someone might argue, well, of course, there were, I mean, there was some bad stuff, right? But the presence of the Roman Empire, I mean, did more harm or good than harm, didn't it? As Reg, the leader of the Judean People's Front of Judea in Monty Python's Life of Brian, reluctantly admits that while they oppose Rome, they kind of have to give credit to, Ro- to the Romans for providing better sanitation, medicine, education, irrigation, public health, roads, fresh water system, baths, and public order. <laughs> now, th- these benefits are often called the Pax Romana, which is touted as proof that Roman occupation was a net gain for the countries that they dominated and conquered. As Warren Carter points out, such a positive assessment of the Pax Romana, however, begs consideration of just who benefits from this empire. This is a very selective view from above. Now, to get a sense of how the locals experienced this great gift from Rome, Tacitus has uh, Briton uh, chief Calgacus he gives this impassioned speech decrying the heavy burden that's borne by the provincials. Things like enslavement, conscription, taxes, tribute, forced labor, and Roman arrogance. Calgacus says, to plunder, butcher, steal, these things they misname empire. They make a desolation and they call it peace. Now, this hatred of the Romans and the resentment it inspired sits very close to the surface of the congregation that Matthew writes to and is, therefore, at the very heart of this story of Jesus' temptations. As Dostoevsky reminds us, the story of Jesus' temptations is about power and who wields it to dominate others. Just listen to this speech that the Emperor Nero gives in Seneca's writings. He says, Have I of all mortals found favor with heaven and been chosen to serve as the vicar of the gods on earth? Without my favored grace, no part of the whole world can prosper. All those many thousands of swords that my peace restrains will be drawn at my nod. What nation shall be utterly destroyed? Which banished? Which shall receive the gift of liberty? Which 
have it taken from them? What kings shall become my servants, and whose head shall be crowned with royal honors? What cities shall fail, and which shall rise? This is mine to decree. Now, in Matthew's hands, the devil's supposed to be a clever stand-in for Caesar and his empire, right? who argues that all the kingdoms of the world are his to dispose of as he sees fit. Right? So the question posed by the story to the congregation at Antioch that is struggling with where to put its trust, given the annoying fact of all that Caesar's persistent and humiliating reminders of who's in charge is, where does the church place its trust? Does the church trust the old regimes and their systems of domination to solve people's problems? Or does it trust the means of producing equity and abundance promised by God's new realm where power remains in God's hands and never in the hands of the giant babies who holler like scalded cats to let everybody know that they get to be boss? A realm that provides for everyone, not to pacify a herd of cattle, but as a gift that highlights the dignity of being human and God's desire for us all to live in a world where everyone has access to the resources they need to live and to thrive. A realm where people don't have to be manipulated or dominated or oppressed or overwhelmed so that the privileged few can continue to enjoy their hold on power. A realm in which God invests us with the freedom to be and become who we really are. But the thing is, it's precisely the old empires and their systems of domination that produced the problems that Caesar now has been trying to convince us that he alone can solve. So the question posed to those who would follow Jesus is, who do you trust to create a world where everyone can finally be freed to live the lives that God intends for us? Where are you going to turn? The matrix and the pacified cattle it produces? Or the new authentic world God is creating where we've been freed from the bonds of oppression and domination? Satan or Jesus? Caesar's kingdoms of domination and oppression or God's new reign of liberation and abundance? Which? It's a group question. So we'll have to decide and answer together. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.